Brethren, for the sermon this afternoon, I would like to discuss a subject that is going to be of increasing importance to all of us in the coming months and years. It's going to be of increasing importance to you and to me. The idea for the sermon emerged from some experiences, a number of experiences I've had in recent weeks that I wanted to share with you uh, at the beginning of the sermon to kind of let you know how my mind works and I think how God guides things. Several weeks ago, I was at a wedding and a Sabbath service up in Manassas, Virginia, just west of Washington, D.C. Many of you were up there too. Manassas is an interesting place because it was the site of one of the early battles in the Civil War. And the battlefield was all about two or three minutes from the hotel where we held services. The wedding was not until about 2 o'clock on Sunday, so on Sunday morning I drove out to the battlefield, walked around a little bit. I was amazed. They were shooting cannons, cannons at each other, the Union Confederate forces, across a field that was about as big as a football field. And they were blazing away at each other. They had about a 45-minute film there with actors dressed up like soldiers and uh, kind of explained how the battle went. One of the segments of the film really struck me, that uh, Confederate forces were coming up from kind of the southwest, the Union forces had got into position. And uh, during the battle, one of the Union batteries, commanded by either a colonel or a major Ricketts, I believe it was, was overrun by Confederate soldiers. He was wounded and captured. After the battle, they sent his bloody sword back to his wife in Washington. She saw it, got in a carriage, and was driven out to the battlefield. She, being an Army wife, knew people on the Confederate side as well as uh, new officers on the Confederate side as well as on the Union side. She was able to get across the Confederate lines, got to the Army field hospital, which was a farmhouse, where this guy probably would have died. She found him, nursed him back to health, and this took probably a number of months, and he was released somewhat sometime later, uh, alive in a prisoner exchange. But I was struck by this woman's courage, getting in a carriage, driving out to the battlefield, finding out where her husband was, and then nursing him back to health. She had a sense of commitment, and I think an awful lot of courage. That was one of the experiences. <clears throat> Second experience on Monday after the wedding, I drove up to Gettysburg and walked around the battlefield up there. I got there a little bit late in the afternoon, did some other types of work up there. But I walked the Union lines up there, and they kind of strung out for about a mile from the cemetery in the north uh, towards the south along a ridge. And the end of the Union line was secured on a little knobby, uh, hilly, a little knobby forested hill called Little Round Top. Little Round Top was defended by the 20th Maine Infantry, and that uh, infantry regiment was commanded by a man by the name of Joshua Chamberlain. They endured attacks on the first or second day of the battle, four or five attacks by the Confederate forces. Just as they were running out of ammunition, apparently Chamberlain realized if they attack once more, <laughs> we're going to be overrun because we don't have any ammunition. So he made a decision. He ordered a bayonet charge, and that scattered the Confederates in that area. <coughs> his action and his decision 
was one of the turning points in that battle. It enabled the Union Army to fight the next day. He was later wounded several times. He was given a uh, Medal of Honor by General Grant. Because of his bravery under fire, he was designated by General Grant to receive the arms of the Confederate soldiers that marched into Appomattox where they surrendered. As these Confederate soldiers marched in to turn over their arms, they were dejected and were led by General Hood. He was kind of slouching in his saddle because they'd been beaten. The soldiers, the Confederate soldiers, kind of slumping along and knowing that they were going to have to turn their arms over. As they marched into the area where Joshua Chamberlain had his troops, he commanded his troops to come to present arms and salute these defeated soldiers who had fought for a cause. He made a decision that was not really popular to salute an enemy, yet he felt it was the right thing to do. Chamberlain went on after the war to become a four-term governor. They elected him at one year at a time at that time. <laughs> but he was governor of Maine for four years, became president of Bowdoin College. What's interesting is Chamberlain was not trained as a soldier. He went through seminary. He was trained to be a minister. And he taught religious philosophy or something like that in college before the war. It turned out he was a man of principle, he was a man of character, a man of conviction. He didn't remain in politics because he wouldn't play the games of politicians. So he went back to teaching college. Chamberlain comes across as a man of courage, a man of conviction, a man of character. He was described by one general as having the heart of a lion and the soul of a woman. He was strong and courageous and yet merciful when he needed to be merciful. That was another one of the experiences that was floating around in my mind when Dr. Meredith gave his sermon during the 15th anniversary activities that we had here. And he talked about the scripture that we heard about in Sermonette in Joshua, where Joshua was told by God to be strong and of good courage. As I was thinking about these experiences, I also remember that we had inserted lesson number seven in the Living Leadership course on developing godly courage and faith. What I wanted to do in the sermon today is connect the dots of all these experiences and talk about the importance of courage, the importance of courage. And I want to do this from a biblical perspective because the Bible has an awful lot to say about the subject of courage. In the sermon, I'd like to ask a couple of questions at the beginning. What is courage? How do you define courage? And the purpose for doing this, if we have a fuzzy notion of courage, what we're going to talk about is not going to be worthwhile. We've got to have an understanding of what courage is so that we can develop that kind of courage. I want to ask, too, is courage important to God? Or are we just talking about things today? How important is courage to God? Why does he talk about it? What does the Bible have to say about courage? And how does this subject relate to you and to me now, today, 
as a young person, as an older person, as a member of the church of God. Why is the subject of courage relevant to people that have been called to be part of God's church at the end of the age? This is not just an academic subject. This is going to affect us in the days and the months and the years, probably not too far ahead of us. Let's look first of all at some definitions, get these things out of the way, but understand what it means. What is courage? Look it up in a dictionary. Maybe do it on your own and write down the words so that you burn these into your mind. Courage is defined as bravery. We just talked about some actions of bravery. This woman that got in a carriage drove out to the battlefield in Manassas and said, look, I've got a letter from General so-and-so and I went through. <laughs> and she got through. And she found her husband and stayed there and nursed him back to health. Courage is also defined as fortitude. Fortitude is courage in adversity. Standing firm when everything begins to look like it's going to crumble. Being patient and enduring during trials. Being firm under pressure. Having a certain spirit of fearlessness. Your Joshua Chamberlain. You know, Saying, look, we're running out of ammunition. We can't. We have nothing else to shoot. Use your bayonets, and we'll we'll do something. We got to do something. Was his decision. It was interesting at Manassas. Stonewall Jackson was not called Stonewall until Manassas, and he stood firm under fire. And he said, "That guy's standing there just like a stone wall," and the name stuck. These guys were firm under pressure, under fire. Fortitude has also been described as having some guts. <laughs> you know, you're willing to take it a little bit, and you stand firm under trials. It can also be defined as mental and moral strength. Mental and moral strength. To resist opposition, to resist danger, stand firm under danger. You could also say the mental and moral strength to resist temptation. How many times have you talked about, well, I just couldn't help myself. I just had to do this or had to do that. No, we don't have to do those things. If we develop the courage to resist temptation or to resist peer pressure, well, everybody else was doing it, and I, I didn't want to stand out and be different. You know, we've got to stand out and be different. God has called us to come out of this world and be different. You know, to set a different course and to stay on that course. Courage would be setting the right example when you're surrounded by people that don't set good examples. Setting a right example when you're surrounded by people that don't set good examples. You know, God is interested in a few good men and women. If I can borrow the Marine Corps recruiting um, scheme. You know, we are being tried and tested to see whether or not we will stand for what is right. In the leadership class, we defined it several different ways. We talked about physical courage. And you know, it may take physical courage to stay in a marital relationship. It's not bad, but it may not be the best. You know, to take a little bit, endure a little bit for the purpose of the children, for the purpose of maintaining your vows. Physical courage is whenever, you know, things get bad outside and you might have to go outside and help somebody in the rain or the snow. And if somebody's called, for, you know, if you're 
serving in the ministry or some other aspect. Somebody calls you for an anointed cloth at 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, I'm in my pajamas. I can't come. <laughs> and sometimes you can anoint a cloth there and send it in the mail, but other times there may need to be comfort given and encouragement given to follow through on some of these things. So physical courage is going to be involved. Mental courage, where you do something knowing that you could fail. Knowing that you could fail. Knowing things are going to be difficult, but you do what's right. Moral courage, where you hold on to your beliefs, regardless of what other people say and do. Moral courage is important. It's important, an important dimension. And holding those beliefs under pressure. Well, everybody else sees all the new truth and they understand it. What's the matter with you? Ain't new. It's old. It's wrong. It may cost you your job, as many of you have noticed. Let me look at just a couple of quick definitions that, that seem to make sense and I think also helps sharpen our focus on what courage is. Courage is doing what you're afraid to do. But it's right, and you do it anyways, even though you may be afraid. Courage has been defined as the mastery of fear, not the absence of fear. We all have fears from time to time, but it's mastering those fears. You know, Stonewall Jackson probably realized he could be shot and he could just disappear if he'd been hit by a cannonball or something like that. But he stood there. He had a job to do as a commander. He was leading other people. Courage is the mastery of fear, not the absence of fear. You know, when I was in college, I was on a swimming team. I was a diver and hit the bottom of the pool one day and broke my neck. Um, one of the things I did when I got out of the hospital was to go off a diving board. It's kind of foolish in a way because it hurt a little bit. But I wanted to just deal with my fears and face them. I didn't want to be afraid of those things again. I don't go off diving boards that often anymore. But it was kind of this thing. I wanted to do it just so I wouldn't be afraid. It was quite an experience. I was a, a student at an all-male school, and this was probably around December, that had this accident. Spent about uh, probably six months in the hospital, or at least four to six weeks, because uh, I wanted to watch, see if there was going to be any complications. But what was interesting, it took me to the hospital, and an ambulance called my parents. They were there when I got there and put me in this ward with about 24 beds. And there were drunks and all kind of people in that ward. And you know, I went to sleep that night, and I woke up the next morning. I thought I'd gone to heaven. About four or five student nurses standing around the bed, because <laughs> I was the only young fellow, college age kid in, in this big room of all these people. But I, I wanted to just mention that in the sense of mastering fears. Sometimes you have to do things that you might be afraid of. You don't let the fears master you. You master them, as we heard about even in the sermonette. Another definition. I think this was George Patton or somebody that came up with this one. Fear, excuse me, courage is fear that holds on a few more moments. Courage is fear that holds on just a few more moments. Just hanging on a little bit longer than those that you may be dealing with. <clears throat> Napoleon, this is for Mr. Partian's benefit. Mr. Uh, Mr. Party, <laughs> Mr. Napoleon. <laughs> Napoleon made the comment that courage must have hope as nourishment. 
courage must have hope as nourishment. You know, God makes certain promises to us, and we can put faith in those promises, and that can give us courage. Because we know God is going to watch over us. He's going to intervene. He's going to guide and direct things, especially in the lives of those that he's calling. Courage must have hope for nourishment, and God certainly gives us plenty of nourishment in the Scriptures. Let's look next at what the Bible has to say about courage. I think we're familiar, and I've been familiar with you for years, as probably you have, the Scriptures in Joshua, where God told Joshua, be strong and of good courage. But you know, if you get out of concordance and look up these words... That phrase is used more than 20 times in the Scriptures. Joshua was not the only person that was told to be strong and of good courage. This theme runs through the Scriptures. Notice the Numbers. In Numbers chapter 13, when Moses was preparing 12 men to go in and uh, survey the promised land, they're called spies in the Bible, but they were just going to go in and look over the promised land, find out what it was like, what was there. In Joshua, excuse me, in Numbers chapter 13, uh, we'll skip down through these verses quickly. So Moses, verse 17, sent them out to spy out the land. He had 12 men from each, one man from each of the tribes. You go in, look things over, verse 18, and see what the land is like, whether the people dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land in which they dwell is good or bad. Down in verse 20, it says, Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land back. But he's saying, be courageous. You Don't be scared about anything. God has promised to give us this land. So you go in, look it over, and be courageous. Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 31, where Moses is basically uh, turning things over to Joshua, preparing the people for that. Joshua, excuse me, in uh, Deuteronomy 31, verse 1. Moses went and spoke all these, these words to all Israel. So what he's going to say in the next several verses was addressed to the entire nation. And he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. I can no longer go in and come out or go out and come in. Also, the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over uh, this Jordan. The Lord, your God himself, crosses over before you. And he will destroy these nations from before you. In other words, God is going to be with you. You know, if you were a halfback on a football team and you've got a couple of guys that are guards and tackles in the center that might weigh about 275 pounds, in front of you. They will open up a hole for you to go through as a halfback. And God is going ahead of his people to basically soften things up and open the way. That's what Moses told the Israelites. Down in verse 6, Moses told the entire nation, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. God promised this land to you. He's going to be with you. And he's going to make a way for you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and of good courage. For you must go with these people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall cause them to inherit it. 
down in verse 23 uh, of, verse, of chapter 31. Joshua is ordained. He then inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Joshua could act courageously with these promises in his mind. Now if we go to Joshua chapter 1, just to keep the sequence going. In Joshua chapter 1, this wasn't Moses talking to Joshua. This was God talking to Joshua. Chapter 1, verse 1, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. You're on your own, Joshua, but I am going to be with you. Now, therefore, arise, go over the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to you. God was making this available. Down verse 5, it says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. In other words, nobody's going to be able to stand in front of you. You're to go in and do what I've asked you to do. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 6, be strong and of good courage. Now notice the context here. For this people shall divide, uh, you shall divide the land. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't change my teachings. Don't compromise my laws. You stay on course. Don't be pulled off course. Well, they told us we could do this. And they told us we don't have to do that anymore. Well, who are they? We've got to ask questions like that. Did God tell us not to keep the Sabbath? Did God say you could keep Christmas? No. Joshua was told, be strong and very courageous. Observe all the law that which Moses has given to you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. Why? that you may prosper, <laughs> that things will go well with you. That's why we obey God. That's why we don't compromise. What was the end result of uh, Joshua's teaching? Let's turn to the very end of the book. Uh, let's go to Joshua chapter 23. We're skipping over a number of other references in this book to being strong and being of good courage. But we look at Joshua's farewell address. starting in verse 2 of chapter 23. And Joshua called for Israel, for all Israel, for their elders, their heads, their judges, <clears throat> and for the, all their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. Verse 6, he says, Therefore be very courageous, and keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Don't compromise my word. Be courageous. Stay focused on the truth. Uh, lest you turn aside from the, it to the right hand or the left hand, and then you get all messed up, basically. Down in verse... Uh, <clears throat> uh, 31, I think it is. 
No, that's not right. In verse 10, it says, One man, in other words, if you obey me, if you stay on course, one man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you, as he promised you. Therefore, take diligent heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. And I believe it is... uh, Maybe you can help me here. One of the verses I didn't write this down. But the end of the days of Joshua, people basically stayed on course. Here it is, verse 31 of chapter 24. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. It appears that Joshua took to heart Moses' admonition. Be strong, be of good courage, don't compromise, stay on course. And it appears he trained the leaders that he trained to do exactly the same thing. They were strong. They didn't compromise. They stayed on course. You can do your own study through a number of other books in the Old Testament. For example, in Second Chronicles 15, verses 2, uh, 7, and 8, uh, King Asa is advised to be strong, to make the reforms that needed to be made. And to don't compromise, and not to compromise the truth. In Second uh, <clears throat> Chronicles thirty-two, verse seven, Hezekiah is admonished again, reforming king to be strong and courageous, to trust God. And God was real to these people; they trusted God. You know, there was an article in the paper this morning about a theologian who lives here in Charlotte. I think about eighty-some years old, and. Uh, he believes in Jesus, but doesn't believe in God. He was involved in the death of God movement back in the 60s because he was a confused theologian. He looked around and saw the, the evils in the world and the problems, and he said, well, there's only two conclusions. Either God is responsible for all of this and he's a killer, or God doesn't exist. You know, he doesn't have the perspective that you have. God is allowing people to do their own thing today being influenced by Satan. God is not the author of what we're saying today. Satan is. This poor fellow doesn't believe there's a God. He must not believe there's a devil either. So he doesn't understand what you've been given to understand. David mentions in uh, Psalm 31, by verse 23 and 24, talks about loving God and being of good courage. David understood that courage was important. Isaiah admonished people uh, to be of good courage. And actually in Isaiah 41, verse 6, the people were encouraging each other to be strong and of good courage. It wasn't just ministers standing up there pounding on a pulpit. <laughs> people were doing this among themselves. Be strong. You know, Stay on course. You can make it. God is going to be with you. As opposed to, you know, these people don't know what they're doing and I don't know why I'm here and all this other stuff. We can get to murmuring. We've got Israelite blood in us, if not physically, then spiritually. We all like to murmur and complain and gripe and complain. We've got to be careful. Satan doesn't use that to his advantage. Let's jump to the New Testament quickly for just a moment. Apostle Paul is writing in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Towards the end of the book, he's encouraging these people in Corinth and be like people living in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, London, where there's lots of ideas and lots of new things to do and get sidetracked on. 
Paul is concluding the letter in verse 13, chapter 16. He says, watch, stand fast in the faith. You've got to know what the faith is if you're going to stand fast in it. You need to prove these things to yourself. You know, should we keep the feasts? Should we keep the Sabbath? Is it necessary to tithe? All these things. Nail these things down for yourself. Watch, be alert, keep your eyes open. You don't get sidetracked by other things that are happening in the world. Stay focused on what God says is going to happen as we approach the end of the age. Watch, stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be courageous. Don't compromise. Don't drift away. Don't drift off course. Be brave and be strong. Paul was saying essentially the same thing to the Corinthians that... Uh, Moses told Joshua, David told Solomon. We didn't go to those scriptures. But this theme runs through the scriptures. Be strong, courageous, be brave, don't compromise. Stand fast in the faith. We turn to um, I believe it's Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Paul was just not all talk and no substance. Paul was speaking from experience when he wrote those words. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Paul talks a little bit about his background, what he went through. And when the Apostle Paul said, be strong and be courageous and don't compromise, he was writing from experience. Down in verse, uh, he's, he's dealing here with how to deal with uh, false teachers. In verse 22, he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? He says, come on, I'm joking. These guys are not ministers of Christ. He says, I speak as a fool. I am more. This is what Paul went through in his ministry. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, beatings, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, being left for dead, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one, 39 lashes. He said, I've got that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of, in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, cold and nakedness. I said, look, it had been easy. It hadn't been easy, but he didn't compromise. This is what we find in the scriptures about courage. One other scripture I'd like to look at while we're here in Corinthians. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 10. Because this brings it home to us today, why we need to spend a little bit of time going over some of these things. Because I think there might be a tendency, well, this happened long ago. You know, We're in the 21st century now, and this is all old stuff. And besides, we don't know whether it's true or not. These are just stories. That undermines people's faith. Paul mentions something very interesting here. He's talking about Old Testament examples of faith and courage and so on. Verse 11, 
He says, now all these things happen to them as examples that we can learn from. And they are written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. These examples are in the scriptures for those living at the end of the age. There's a primary purpose and function of these things. Because things are going to become very challenging in the years just ahead. We don't have time to go into that today, but things are not going to be easy. Things are not going to go on like they have been going on for years. You know, the dollar is in trouble. And if it crashes, our economy is going to be in trouble. You know, the Chinese are building up their army, and they're not building it up just to look at it. We are in debt to the Chinese, and if they pull the economic rug out from under us, and they shoot down some of our communication satellites, and then they move on Taiwan, things are going to change in the world. You know, for those of you that have traveled internationally in the last 10 years, people like to see the American dollar. They're not going to like to see it in years ahead. People have been very respectful to Americans traveling. That will probably change too. We have got to be courageous and learn from these examples that are written for our admonition for those on whom the ends of the world are coming. Let's look quickly at some examples <clears throat> that are recorded in the Scriptures. David is an interesting example. Again, we don't have time to go through all kinds of examples, but I wanted to pull just several. We turn to Second uh, Samuel, First Samuel, excuse me, First Samuel, chapter seventeen. This was the time period whenever three of David's brothers were serving in the Israelite army. They were lined up in battle against the Philistines. The Philistines sent out their champion, Goliath. And he was coming up in front of the, uh, the troops and yelling at them, basically. saying, you know, where's your God? You send somebody out here, I'll take care of him. <laughs> he beats me, we'll be your slaves. But if I beat him, you'll be our slaves. It was mocking the Israelites. David goes down to the battle scene, and uh, he starts asking a few questions. Now, this had been going on for 40 days. A couple of times a day, this big guy comes out there, rattles his sword, mocks people, and the soldiers were cringing. They were afraid. David goes down and asks a few questions. He says, who is this jerk? Who is this guy? Verse 26 that he should defy the armies of the living God. He wasn't like this poor theologian here in Charlotte. Well, I'm not sure that God exists. <laughs> oh, David said, who is this guy? He's mocking the armies of the living God. That shouldn't happen. Then his older brother gets on his case in verse 28. He says, I know your pride and your insolence. You came down here to see a battle. <laughs> and David said, what have I done? He said, I brought some food down to you guys. Who is this guy anyways that's making this noise? Saul hears about this, calls David up, talks with him a little bit. And David says, look, I'll take care of the situation. Saul said, well, look, you're only a kid. You're only a kid. You're only a youth. This guy's a man of war. But notice David's response. Verse 35. He said, I went out and he said, let's go to 34. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it. 
Now, he didn't have a, a 357 Magnum. He had a staff. You go beating on a, a lion or beating on a bear. I remember reading a story once uh, where a family going camping, and a bear came in and grabbed one of the little kids. And his lady picked up an aluminum folding chair and started beating on the bear, and he dropped the kid but mauled her. So if we can put this in context, David said, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. You start beating on it, probably dropped the lamb. And when it arose against me, I caught it by the beard and struck it and killed it. This guy had some guts. <laughs> he had to grab a lion, and he must have had a knife or something, but he killed it. If he did the same thing with a bear, you don't do those things to bear. They're not very polite when they get upset. But this was David. Your servant has killed both a lion and a bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. I'm going to make mincemeat out of this guy. <laughs> Seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. It wasn't David. He knew where his strength came from. He knew that God was going to back him up. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That was where David's courage came from. You could use the example of Esther. Maybe read through the book of Esther. You know, the king involved was Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, who was one of the most prominent Persian kings. It's interesting to read what I think Herodotus says about uh, Xerxes. He said he was a cruel, capricious, uh, sensuous individual. Apparently the party they were having was a big display of his wealth and power before he invaded the Greeks. He was going to go over to Greece and basically take care of them. They were viewed as rebels at that time. So he puts on this big thing. His wife apparently didn't go along with it. So he got rid of her and had some sort of a beauty contest or something and selects this young Jewish girl to be his next queen. You might put yourself in her shoes. You want to be the wife of this guy that Herodotus says was cruel, capricious. He just made wild decisions. I don't like you. Get rid of that queen. I'll get another one. And sensuous. And she might have asked, what did I do to deserve this? Again, this theologian here in Charlotte says that you know, God doesn't intervene in history. But when you read the book of Esther, God was placing a young Jewish girl next to the throne. It turned out her uncle wound up becoming Xerxes' basically prime minister. So God was placing next to one of the most powerful men on the earth two individuals that were going to play a key role in preserving the Jewish people. God does intervene in history. And he's got plans and purposes that many leaders of this world simply don't understand. Anyways, they discovered a plot to kill the Jews. Esther was reminded by her uncle, you are in this position, it appears, for a reason. You are here for a reason, to save your people. So she invites the king to a dinner very carefully laid out, invited the accuser also, and then exposes the accuser in front of the king. The girl had courage and she had wisdom. 
She outlived Xerxes. It was her stepson that was on the throne when Ezra and Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem. She appears to have been a woman of influence in the palace for years after this incident, paving the way for the return of the Jews back to Jerusalem. God had placed, as one, I think as Hallie's handbook mentions, uh, the brains and the heart right clicks to the throne of the most powerful throne on the earth at that time. God has ways of working out his plans and purposes, but he needed a young girl with courage. And he needed a man, her uncle, with courage and wisdom. And he used them in a very powerful way. Jesus Christ told his disciples several times towards the end of his ministry, he says, we have got to go up to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. But I'm going to come back alive after three days. They didn't believe him at first. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew why he had come to this earth. And you can read the prayer in Matthew where he says, you know, the night before all this happened, he says, God, you know, if it's possible, can I take this cup away? <laughs> can we do it any other way? But his conclusion was, not my will, it's not what I want, but your will. He was humble, he was dedicated, he was convicted, and he had the courage to go through what he knew was coming. The early New Testament church, you can read this in Acts 2, 3, and 4, where Peter and John were preaching. They healed a person, attracted attention. They were basically arrested, brought before a council in Jerusalem, and told, you know, you're preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. We told you not to do that. What was Peter's response? Oh, okay, okay, okay. No, he said, should we obey you or should we obey God? Now, they knew how they had to answer that because they were religious people. He said, if it's right to obey you or is it right to obey God? He said, we've got to do what's right. They went back out and preached. And they were arrested and beaten later. And they went back out and preached again. You know, Paul's ex or Stephen's example, <clears throat> he was a man of faith and courage and conviction. He did some miracles. Again, was called before council. And he stood up in front of them, basically repeated their history, and then wound up saying, you guys killed the Messiah. You are murderers. They didn't like it. And they took his life. But he was a very powerful witness to the leaders of his time period, his day. And God used that example. Let's look at Paul for just a minute again in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And these are very stirring words, I think, to read them through, think about them, and realize we're probably going to face some similar situations in the months and years ahead. <clears throat> Paul was on a preaching mission. <clears throat> he was in Antioch uh, in chapter 13, towards the end of that chapter, preaching very powerfully. Uh, Jews and Gentiles came to hear him. Uh, verse 44, it says, The next Sabbath almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Verse 45, But when the Jews saw that the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken of by Paul. So they had to get out of there. They went down to over to Galatia, chapter 14. Uh, we're preaching there in uh, Iconium. Uh, verse 2, it says, The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. You know, they're preaching heresy. They're off base. They're a cult. They're crazy. Don't listen to them. 
Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done. But the multitude of the city was divided, and they basically had to flee to Lystra and Derby, where again they were preaching very powerfully. Then verse 19 of chapter 14, Then the Jews from Antioch, these people where they had just been, were following Paul around. They came together, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. You might, what did Paul look like after that sermon? He was probably bloody. Maybe he had some broken bones and scrapes and whatever. May have been unconscious. That was his reward for preaching. However, the, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went back into the city. He probably didn't go marching and triumph. He was probably limping and hurting and bleeding. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Now notice verse 21 and 22. And when they had preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. Iconium, and Antioch. They went right back through the cities that they had been chased out of. Why did they do that? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. What an example. Here was Paul that got bloodied up and run out of town, coming right back through the same town, saying, you got to hang in there. We've got a work to do. We've got to finish this work. We've got a mission to perform saying, we must through many trials and tribulations, or through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. You know, if you get the Saturday or Sunday paper, look through the religious section for today. And they talk about, well, come to our church, everybody's friendly, and we'll talk about the good health, and we'll talk about how to improve your, your financial situation. <laughs> and we love everybody. See, that's not the message that we have. We're talking about the downfall of the United States coming. We're talking about a beast power rising in Europe. We're talking about earthquakes beginning to happen all around the world. There's a volcano explosion, I think, just the other day down in, what was it, Ecuador someplace. And these news reports that have come out in uh, New Zealand, both the North and South Island, are really sitting on top of, uh, of fault lines over there. And one or two of those islands could disappear. And you wonder, well, would God let that happen? Read about what's happening in New Zealand these days the marches of gays and all the other things that are happening there. And these are nice, God-fearing, Israelite countries. It's going to be sobering when God begins to shake the world, and especially those countries that he has called or that he's blessed according to the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And whoever's in these countries is going to suffer from those things. But Paul was a very, leaves us, I think, a very sobering example of preaching the truth in spite of the persecution. Now, what does this have to do with us today? We've been talking about history and courageous people in history. What does this have to do with people today, in the church especially? You know, we've been called and given a mission to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God, not going off to heaven and playing harps and sitting on clouds and dancing around up there in streets of gold. Our message is very different. To preach the gospel of a coming kingdom of God, that God is real. He does and has intervened in history to guide and direct what has happened and what is going to happen. 
We are going to have a message to deliver that people are not going to be excited about. Turn back to uh, Isaiah 58, verse 1. This was the mission of Isaiah. It was the mission of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the other prophets. And it's basically our mission today because we've got pretty much the same job to do. It's going to be a thankless job. But uh, once we get past the difficult times, it's going to be a very exciting job. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Isaiah's mission was to cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and tell my people their sins or their transgressions, and the house of Jacob their sins. People are being told today, well, we are mature today. We've learned so much. We're so tolerant. And we can accept everything, and everything's going to be fine. That is not the message of Scripture. That is not the message of Scripture. Now, Jeremiah talks a number of cases where he says, your leaders will lead you astray. Your leaders will lead you astray. They will lead you down a garden path that's going to be filled with weeds and thistles and some severe consequences. It does make a difference to God whether you keep Christmas or whether you keep the feast. It does make a difference to God whether you keep the Sabbath or whether you go to church on Sunday and watch football games in the afternoon on Sunday if you believe that's your worship day. It does make a difference to God. You know, Israel and Judah went into captivity. Read Ezekiel chapter 20. Because they violated God's Sabbaths. They didn't trust God. They didn't obey God. And they went into captivity because of that. And we're told in Malachi that God does not change. And yet people are being told today, we're under a new covenant. And none of that stuff applies anymore. That's where leaders are leading people astray today. And people that sat in Church of God services over the last 20, 30, 40 years are being led down a, a wrong path. And they're going to have to come to understand that. They will come to understand that. If you read through the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says many times, they will know, God says, when I'm done with them, that I am alive, I exist, I'm real. This poor fellow, the theologian that was written up in the paper today, he's not sure God even exists. He doesn't exist. The world's going to be surprised, sobered by what they're going to see. Our job is to cry aloud and spare not and show my people their sins. Some of the things we're going to have to talk about. The lead article in the uh, latest Tomorrow's World magazine. That God thinks gay marriages and things like that, that whole subject, he says, is an abomination. It stinks. And that's not politically correct to say today. But when you read history, you find that nations that went down that road crumbled from within ancient Greece, ancient Rome. These things were being accepted. It's interesting. The Germans were doing the same thing prior to the rise of the Nazis. They had all kinds of liberal experiments going on in Berlin. Hitler came in and cleaned house. And it, probably, it probably resonated with some people. Well, he's straightening things out. He's building highways. He's doing all kinds of things. And then led the Germans into a war that destroyed the nation. But there were some things that he did that I'm sure people, some people probably identified with. 
But we're going to have to tell the world this is wrong. And it's not just Old Covenant. Read Romans chapter 1. Where Paul talks about people were given over to reprobate minds when they threw away the, the laws of God. And they got, got started getting involved in these kinds of relationships. If God is going to punish these nations, and our people need to understand why that punishment's coming. And we're going to have to have the guts, the fortitude, the courage to deliver a message that people are not going to want to listen to. It's interesting you read Isaiah, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, where Ezekiel is being given a commission. God says, I'm going to make your forehead hard against their forehead. I think God called Dr. Meredith for a reason. He was a prize fighter. And you get in the ring with somebody, you've got to have make your forehead hard against theirs and your chin hard against theirs because they're going to try and knock yours off. I think he's demonstrated the guts and the fortitude. And I think many of you have too because you're here. You weren't invited in and wooed with bands and gifts and you know, all kinds of things like that. You can people say, what are you going there for? You don't want to go over there. And you had to go on your own. You didn't have a lot of people coming with you, and people probably ridiculed you. In Malachi, God says there, I hate divorce. And yet people do, well, if it doesn't work, try it again. No, God says, I hate those things. He said, I want godly offspring. I want kids to be able to grow up and know who their real father and real mother is. You know, living, we're living in a world today that is totally upside down. We're living in a world, as Mr. Armstrong said, the world that our leaders have made. And we've got to have the courage to say what's right and say what's wrong and to do what's right. Jeremiah talks about false religious teachers. You read through the first ten chapters of Jeremiah where he talks about your leaders have caused you to err. They've manipulated my law. They don't understand what it's all about. They turn it upside down and inside out. And he says, my people love to have it so. They like what they're hearing. But we're going to have to have the courage to stand up and say, no, that's wrong. We're going to have to explain the truth about the Catholic Church. But the Pope is not in apostolic succession. They don't even know who the first several popes were, if there were. <laughs> they didn't use the term Pope until about four or 500 years after the time of Jesus Christ. I ordered a couple of books last week talking about Christmas. And these are people that are non-church people. Talking about that uh, you know, Christmas came from a midwinter pre-Christian celebration. I think you read the book by Ariel Durant on uh, Lessons of History, and he talks about uh, uh, the Catholic Church, and he's a Catholic. He said they borrowed these things, and they gave them Christian names to try and get people to come into the church. The early church didn't believe in a trinity. A lot of these things. Now, as we make this plain to the world, we're not going to get thank you cards from Rome. You know, this is going to be a message that people are not going to like. And if people in your neighborhood see you getting a magazine, because people know, especially the postman knows what goes in your mailbox. Sometimes you see the postman reading the magazines. 
But if people recognize what comes into your post office box or into your mailbox, and they happen to look at it or see Dr. Meredith or Mr. Ames, fortunately I'm not on those programs, but as they see those people and they hear that message, uh, they're going to connect the dots with you and the program and the magazine. And somebody says, would you believe the same thing as that uh, Church of God, Living Church of God? What are you going to say? Who, me? <laughs> not, not, not me. And I applied for a job one time. I mean, I cut back at the college back in the 70s. I think the job was on the island of Guam. I was teaching anatomy and physiology, which is what I had my degree in. I had the perfect credentials for the job. I applied for the job, and I got a letter back said, if your views are anything like Herbert W. Armstrong with the Plain Truth magazine, forget it. I took the letter to uh, our dean at that time and said, do you want the job? I said, what do you mean? He said, this man is at a United States university on Guam. He said, he's turned you down for religious reasons. That's illegal. He said, if you want the job, you can probably have it. Just file a, a suit. The conditions of the job were once you accepted that you had to be there, they would fly you home once a year. I thought, I don't think I want to put myself and my family in that position <laughs> where you're on this island out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You can't leave for a year. <laughs> but no, I don't think I want it that badly. But I lost the job because of what my beliefs were, because I happened to believe <laughs> what was in the magazine at that time and what Mr. Armstrong was preaching. And it cost the job. You know, we will all probably have opportunities to build some courage through experience. Because God is molding and fashioning us to become kings and priests and leaders in the coming kingdom of God. You know, if Paul and Peter and James and John and Esther and David and all these people had to go through lessons and learn lessons, we're probably going to have our experiences too. So we need to get ready and prepare for these things. Noticing again what's coming. And uh, Dr. Meredith touched on some of these things in his sermon, but I want to review it here quickly in context. We go to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus is basically giving a commission to his disciples. First several verses, it says, uh, verse 1, the 12, he called the 12 disciples, gave them power over unclean spirits. God doesn't leave us in the lurch. He's calling us to do a job, and he will provide the power that's needed. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease, gives the names. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, do not go into the, the Gentiles, at least to that point yet. Do not enter into the city of Samaria, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In order to fulfill that mission, we've got to know who these people are and where they are. And this idea of the identity of various nations is not some little thing. We've got to understand where the people are that are to receive a message so that they understand why their nation is going to go down the tubes and the reasons behind that. You know, this whole thing was thrown out the window a number of years ago in the organization that we came out of. Well, it's an interesting concept. <laughs> it has nothing to do with your salvation. Baloney. You know, if you don't fulfill the mission, there's going to be no salvation. You go back and read, I think it's in Ezekiel 33, where Ezekiel is told, you deliver a warning. If they hear you, they will be saved and you will be saved. If they won't hear you, then they have to answer for themselves. But if you don't deliver the message, you are going to be called on the carpet. 
So we're going to have to have a certain amount of guts, determination, conviction, courage. You know, Mr. Ames and Dr. Meredith and others of us are doing that. It's going to come down to you too. Will you identify with what we're being, what we're saying? Well, I don't know them. <laughs> I had another job interview back in Massachusetts. Uh, was interviewed for the job, was offered the job, and I was walking out of the interview. This one guy said, uh, by the way, how's Garner Ted? He knew where I was coming from. He knew what I believed, but the president had offered the job. <laughs> but he was just letting me know. He said, I know where you're coming from, bud. I know what you believe. Fortunately, I didn't have to work with this guy. But it was interesting. <clears throat> People will know what you believe. But you read down through here, <clears throat> uh, verse 16. Now, this is looking ahead. This is prophetic. And these things are going to relate to us today. Behold, I send you out as sheep amidst wolves. Now, if you're a little sheep kind of bouncing down the road, <laughs> and these hungry wolves are over there kind of licking their chops. Boy, there's a juicy looking one. <laughs> You know, it's not going to be the most pleasant thing. He's using analogies here. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless of doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in the synagogues. Go back and read Acts 13 and Acts 14, where these people followed Paul around and stirred people up against them. But Paul, that didn't discourage Paul and Peter and others. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils, Scourge you in the synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Stephen was brought before the leaders in his generation. He delivered his message and they took his life. Didn't appreciate it, but they heard. They heard what they needed to hear. And they will be held responsible. And Stephen's going to come up in the, second res or in the first resurrection. He will be there if these other people if these other people come up later. And they're going to be shocked out of their gourd. We thought we did you in. He'll have a smile probably and say, Welcome. We have some things to talk about. <laughs> I think Stephen too had the heart of a lion. And it appears he will have the excuse me, yeah, the heart of a lion and the what was it? Soul of a the soul of a lion, the heart of a woman. That was it. <clears throat> And we've got to be able to be merciful and forgiving. As Stephen, you read the account, just before he died, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand where their motivation has come from. They don't understand who got them stirred up. It takes a big person to be able to do that. Down in verse 21, it says, Now brother will deliver brother to death. This may be one of your brothers that's not in the church or the God offended in some way, or a sister, or some other relative or friend. And a father is child, and children rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. So I think what this tells us is we need to deal very diplomatically with our friends and family members. We don't want to be the cause of their offense. Now, if the truth is, that's something else. But we won't, don't want to be the cause. I think it's important to maintain family relationships and friendly relationships as much as possible. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
but he who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, the one that hangs on, as we define courage, it's fear hanging on just a little bit longer. That's what it's going to take. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. That's exactly what Paul did. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And I think you probably jot in your margin here, the work is not over. The work will not be over. We'll still be doing it when the Son of Man comes. I don't think there's anybody in this church that believes the work is over. But there are people in other organizations that do believe the work is over. And all they have to do is kind of sit around, have socials, and have a good time, and be nice to each other. Now, we've got a job to do, a mission to fulfill. What I'd like to do in concluding is to talk just a little bit. Well, we should mention one other scripture here. Go back to Daniel, another prophetic scripture. It's going to be interesting to see how this is fulfilled. <clears throat> in Daniel chapter 11, talking about things that are going to be happening as we approach the end of the age. In verse 33, it says, "Those And those of the people who understand, those that understand the truth, shall instruct many. Will that be through the television program? Will that be through the booklets and magazines? Will it be through public lectures? And we're not told exactly how this is going to be fulfilled, but the prophecy is there. And this doesn't apply to the Catholic Church. It doesn't apply to the Presbyterians or Baptists. They don't understand. We have been given an understanding for a reason. Those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and the flame and captivity and plundering. It's not going to be an easy job. Now when they fall, they shall be aided uh, with a little help, but many shall join them uh, with them by intrigue. So there's going to be some difficult times coming, but this verse 33, it's going to be interesting to watch to see how that is fulfilled. That many who understand will instruct many. And God may be the one that opens up opportunities. It may be someplace where you work, some situation in your life that develops. I think I've used this example before. We had a young girl in our youth organization, YOU, up in New England. She'd written a paper on the common market in Europe, what was going to happen there. The teacher called for the papers. They were passed in. The teacher put it down in the corner of her desk. The principal walked in shortly after she collected those papers. Kind of looked around, looked at that paper, and said, can I, can I read this paper? Took this paper written by 17-year-old girls in the, in the church. Took it home, called her into his office the next morning. <laughs> said, can you explain to me what this paper's all about? So here's a 17, 18-year-old girl explaining to her principal <laughs> the truth. She didn't plan for that. But apparently she was able to explain to him what it was all about. I remember doing a paper when I was in graduate school. I'd just come into the church and I had a secretary typing something out. It was a paper on what is the purpose of human life. We had a guy in one of the medical departments that was told later he really wanted to be a Baptist minister. So he was basically preaching to the medical students. <laughs> and he had them write a paper one year on what is life for and the other next year he'd write what is life not for. So I was learning about the, the truth at that time. I wrote it to what I thought was interesting. And the secretary said, 
wow, this is really interesting. So she got her witness for my paper. Never heard anything from the other guy. I don't know whether he ever read the papers or not, but it was a good exercise for me to kind of summarize what I believe. I'd like to conclude talking about how to build character because we've been talking about it. How do you build character? Not so much character, but courage. How do we grow in courage? I just want to review very quickly the seven points that we listed in the lesson in the living leadership class. Number one, to build courage, determine to obey God. Determine to obey God. God says to keep the Sabbath. I'm going to do it. And the biblical principles are don't date outside the church. Be determined to do that. It says to honor your parents. Be determined to do that. To keep the feast. Be determined to be there. Determined to obey God. Proverbs 28, verse 1. Just notice what is stated in Proverbs 28, verse 1. We have been called to be righteous. A righteous person strives to live by the commandments of God. Psalm 119, verse 172. It says, all thy commandments are righteousness. But notice what it says here in chapter 28 of Proverbs, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues. They're scared. They're not confident. They're not courageous. But the righteous are bold as a lion. And I wonder if this is not where... Uh, the comments about Joshua Chamberlain came from. The righteous are bold as a lion. This guy was a college professor, a seminary student. And he wound up a general at the end of the war, received the arms of the surrendering Confederates at Appomattox because of his bravery, because of his courage. And he got out of politics because he wouldn't play their games. He was going to hold on to his principles. The righteous are bold as a lion. Be determined to obey God. That's what David was doing. God's not going to put up with his Philistines throwing those words around. God's going to take care of them. And I'm going to go out there and be an instrument in God's hands. Point number two, trust and believe God. Trust and believe God. You know, Moses told Joshua, God is going to go with you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's going to go with you. Romans 8.28 talks about all things work to the good for those that are called according to God's purpose. If you've been called and you know that, you stay on course and don't worry about any flack that comes along. Trust and believe God. Point number three, don't compromise. Go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 4 where Moses told the Israelites coming into the promised land, don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left, just stay on course, just do what I ask you to do. Don't compromise. Point number four, ask God for strength. Ask Him for strength. Ask Him for courage. God, give me the courage that I need to stay on course, to do what you, you know, have asked us to do. Give us the courage and the boldness. Go back and read. Well, I think there's the prayer in... Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John got out of jail. They came back to the church. And they prayed. said, God, give boldness to these men. And as the closing prayer ended, God shook the whole building. I heard you. (laughs) 
Now, how would you feel at the closing prayer today? Somebody asked you, God, give us the courage we need. And the building begins to shake. Not enough to break walls. That gives Mr. Crockett too many things to pay for and fix up. <laughs> but, you know, it would be a startling answer to a prayer. You ask something, bam, it happens. God is real. David knew that. Jesus knew that. Peter and Paul knew that. Ask God for the strength that you need. Point number five. <clears throat> Stir up the gift of God's Spirit. That was referred to in the sermonette. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Paul is telling Timothy to stir up, fan into flame, bring to a boil the gift of God's Spirit that you receive through the laying on of my hands. It's not a spirit of doubt or fear, but of power, which comes from a Greek word, dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. You know, something explosive that moves mountains. That's the power of God's Spirit. The Spirit of power and of love, which is an unselfish, outgoing concern. The heart of a woman, in that sense. And of a sound mind, a discerning mind. I know where the work is being done. I know what the truth is. I know what the doctrines of God are. And I'm determined to obey those. Point number six. Endure trials that come along. You know, exercise faith and trust. God says all things will work out. Realize there will be a solution. It'll come. But we've got to be patient while we're waiting on God to do those things. And then we do what we need to do too. I think it was Hezekiah that made the comment, or one of the kings that made the comment, Sennacherib was coming up against Jerusalem. And uh, people said, wow, look, there's big armies out there. And uh, the prophet that was involved helped Elijah. Elijah, there we go. Elijah says, there's more with us than are with them. Because he knew the hosts of God were there. There's more with us than are with them. David makes comments about Goliath. He said, uh, he's just a physical man. He said, God's on our side. See, God was real to these people. Endure through the trials. Realize that God is there. Point number seven. <clears throat> Point number seven, never, never, never give up. Never, never, never quit. I think Churchill borrowed that. Never, never, never surrender. <laughs> In Luke chapter 9, verse 62, it talks about there, if a man sets his hand to the plow and begins to go in a direction, don't turn around and start looking over your shoulder. Don't look back. Look forward. Look ahead. I had a very sobering conversation with an individual that I got to know when I came into the church. We were sitting talking one time about uh, seven or eight years ago. And he began telling me, he said, Doug, you have made a big mistake. He said, you're just wrong in what you believe. He said, you know, uh, the church has done me wrong over the years. If I hadn't come into the church, I'd married somebody else. I'd have lived a different life. I just looked at him. I said, I don't believe what I hear you saying. And he looked at me and said, I don't believe I'm saying what I'm saying. It was strange. But he was looking back. He was looking back. He was not looking forward to the kingdom of God. He was looking to back at what might have been bad way to go. 
Yeah, Luke chapter 9 mentions when you've set your hand to the plow, make sure you know what the plow is all about. <laughs> make sure you know where it's going. And then determine to hang on to that plow to the end. Don't start looking back and thinking over things. In Matthew 24, verse 13, Jesus mentions it there. Those that endure to the end, that exercise the courage, the conviction, and the character. You've got to be focused on the big picture. Again, Napoleon's comment. The courage needs hope for nourishment. You've got to be confident in the hope, in the promises that are made. You and I have been called to become kings and priests, civil and religious leaders. Leaders don't have it easy. <laughs> Everybody else's problems winds up on your desk. But it's going to be exciting being in the kingdom of God. We're going to be given power and authority to use and to use wisely. Brethren, we have been called for an incredible opportunity to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. We're being prepared now. We're on shakedown cruises individually. You know, our faith is going to be tested. Our courage is going to be tested. God is going to help us grow so that we're ready for the jobs that we're going to be given when that time and opportunity comes. It's interesting, the Bible devotes a considerable amount of space to the subject of courage. Now, I was very much aware, as you probably were, of the admonitions to Joshua three times in that first chapter. Be strong, be of good courage. But when you look it up and study the subject, this is mentioned dozens of times to the whole nation, not just to Joshua. It was mentioned to other kings down through the years. The years ahead are going to be very challenging. And it's going to require a courageous group of people not to compromise the truth of God. It's going to require a courageous group of people to be a light and an example to the world. That is not God's way. This is God's way. And it's going to be those people that maintain their course during this period of time they're going to be given the opportunity to say to people all around the world, this is the way. Walk you in it. If you've had the courage to maintain a course of action, God's course of action now, you're going to be given an incredible opportunity to teach the world a way of life. It's going to be a blessing to them forever. But it's going to require courage on our part.